It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Feldman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, of all the topics we cover here in The Tent, the one we discuss the least, rather shockingly, I might add, is the fishes that we keep in our tanks. Yeah, I talk more about fungi, sediments, decomposition, and leaf litter than I do about fishes. And of course, when someone hits me up and asks me, Scott, what are your favorite fishes for botanical-style aquariums? I'm like, well, shit, I never even covered that. I mean, I've talked about fish before, but I never did like a list or article based on that. I mean, we should have covered this before. It's a cool topic, and I'm kind of unsure why, actually. Probably because most of the articles on this kind of topic are kind of, I don't know, I'm just going to say it. They're so just boring. You ever read one of those top 10 listicle thingies that people make about fishes? They usually, well, they just suck. I mean, I, I know it's harsh, but they're kind of boring in my opinion. I mean, they talk about the size of the fish, what it eats, and, you know, how many you should keep and what size tank you can keep it in. I mean, helpful, but I, I don't know, just boring. Uh, stuff you can pretty much find in any aquarium-related reference. You can just Google that and find that stuff. You don't come here for that, I hope. So we'll try to cover these fishes that I put on my little list from a slightly different perspective, as I like to say. So let's hit that topic right now. Okay, let's hit some of that topic because my list is probably longer than my patience to discuss them all in one podcast. And I'll try my best not to do it the boring way. Uh, yeah, damn, I have a bunch of fishes. <laughs> I just don't think I'm going to get them all. So, okay, give me a break. It's a start, right? Now, here's the thing. You'll find that my fish choices are as much based upon the habitats that they come from as they are about the fishes themselves. Okay, let's just get this party started. In no particular order, well, maybe in order, I don't know. Let's talk with the, about the sailfin kerosene, Cranucus spilurus. We've all had that one fish that just sort of occupies a place in our hearts and minds, a fish that for whatever reason bites you and never lets go, right? I think that every serious aquarist has at least one such fish. Now here's mine. Of course, let me digress for a second. It's also about the habitat which this fish lives in that's kept me under its spell for so long. As a lover of leaf litter in our natural botanical style aquariums, I'm fascinated not only by this unique ecological niche, but by the organisms which inhabit it. I've went on and on and spoken at length about many of the microorganisms, the fungi, the insects, and the crustaceans which add to the diversity of this environment. And of course, we've looked at some of the fishes which live there too. Perhaps not enough, actually. So one of my all-time favorite fishes, and my absolute favorite kerosene, is none other than the amazing sailfin tetra, Cranucus spilurus. This is truly an awesome fish. Not only is it attractive and morphologically cool, it at least cool looking anyway, it has a great demeanor and behaviors which separate it from almost every other kerosene out there. I first fell for this fish as a kid when I saw a cool black and white picture of it in one of my dad's well-worn copies of William T. Inna's classic book, Exotic Aquarium Fishes. It pretty much assured me from toddler days that I'd be a fish geek. I obsessed over this book before I could even read. I was hooked from the start with Cranocus, especially when reading about the romantic etymology of the name. And it just seems so mysterious and unattainable, even in the 1930s. 
well, especially back in the 1930s, but it seemed downright exotic. To this day, it's one that you just don't see too much of in the hobby. And then trying to tie it together with my love of those leaf litter strewn habitats, it was a real combo that I couldn't resist. I never got this fish out of my system, and it took me like 30 plus years of being a fish geek to find this fish in real life. And you know, I jumped when I got the chance, and it was so worth the wait. It's almost cichlid-like in its behavior. It's intelligent, it's interactive, and endearing. It has social behaviors which will entertain and fascinate anybody who's fortunate enough to keep it. Now I admit, it's definitely not the most colorful kerosene on the planet, but there's more to this fish than meets the eye. It all starts with its most intriguing name. The Latin root of the genus Cronucus means guardian of the spring. How cool is that? It's really cool, even romantic sounding, which evokes imagery and questions. Does it mean the protector of a body of water or some honorary homage to everyone's favorite season? Or Not sure, but you must agree that the name is pretty cool. In Greek, it's Krinokos, the god of running waters. Yeah, that's the shit. I mean, do Latin names get any cooler than that? I don't think so. The Krinuchidae, or Krinuchidae, I think Ty Streitman would school me on how to pronounce that, South American darters, is really an interesting family of fishes. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it includes 93 species and 12 genera throughout the Amazon region alone. Most Kronukids are, well, how do we put it delicately, chromatically challenged, i.e. gray, black, and brown fishes, which tend to lie in wait near substrate, typically leaf litter or aggregations of branches, feeding on insects and microinvertebrates. And the genus Kronukus consists of just one species, our pal Kronukus spilurus, I'm going to tongue twist that name today, a fish which shares its habits and body shape that are more commonly associated with cyprinids and cichlids. It's just weird, right? Now, the relatively subdued coloration serves a purpose, of course. These fishes live amongst leaf litter, root tangles, and botanical debris in tinted water, which demand, if you don't want to be food for bigger fishes and birds, some ability to camouflage yourself effectively. The sailfin is an exception to the drab thing, though, and it's remarkably attractive for a very simple, benthic living fish. Sure, on the surface, it's not the most exciting fish out there, especially when it's a juvenile, but it's a fish that you need to be patient with. Uh, fish to search for, collect, hold onto, and enjoy as it matures and grows. As the fish matures, in true ugly duckling style, it literally blossoms into a far more attractive fish. The males have this extended dorsal and anal fin, and they're larger and way more colorful than the females. Now, yes, colorful is relative here, but when you see a group, you'll notice the sexual dimorphism right away, even among juveniles. Individuals spend a lot of the time sheltered under dead leaves or branches or roots or hiding, sort of hiding or semi-hiding under, you know, uh, wood and so forth. They tend to hover and they don't dart about like your typical tetra would. In fact, their behavior reminds me of the dart fishes of the marine aquarium world. They sort of sit back and flick their fins, often moving in the slow, deliberate motions. Communication, perhaps. And what's weird is if you try to count them as a habit that I have when I look at my aquariums I say are all the fish present and accounted for and then if I know I have eight of them I'll count and you'll see them just appear like invisibly they'll just one will appear right after the other they just are there it's very bizarre now the sailfin feeds during the daylight hours and it spends much of its day sheltering under branches leaves and root tangles and it's a mid-water feeder consuming particular organic matter like aquatic invertebrates insects bits of flowers and fruits the cool food items from outside of the aquatic environment that form what ecologists call allochthonous input, materials from outside the aquatic habitat which are abundant in the terrestrial habitats surrounding the aquatic ones which we love to model our aquariums after. Interesting stuff. 
Which sort of brings us to the next one on our hit list, the Tucano Tetra, Tucano Ichthys Tucano. Now you all know by now that my philosophy is to study and understand the environments from which our fishes come from and to replicate them in function and form as best as possible. Doesn't always mean it exactly, but it's definitely not forcing them to adapt to our local tap water conditions without any attempt to modify them. I have a very current case study of my own that sort of reflects the execution of my philosophy and it involves our fish, the Tucano Tetra. As many of you know, I've had a long obsession with the idea of root tangles and submerged accumulations of leaves and branches and seed pods. I love that silty sedimented substrate and the intricate interplay of terrestrial plant roots with the aquatic environment. I was doing a geeky deep dive into this habitat in Amazonia one evening and I stumbled upon this gem from a scientific paper by none other than Jacques Guéry and uh, Uri Romer from 1997. And I'll quote you from it. The brook, 80 to 200 centimeters wide, 50 to 100 centimeters deep near the end of the dry season, the level was still dropping at the rate of 20 centimeters a day, runs rather swiftly in a dense forest with ficus trees and Leopoldia palms in water that are the dominant plants. Dead wood, mostly prickly trunks of palms, are lying in the water, usually covered with ficus leaves, which also cover the bottom with a layer 50 to 100 centimeters thick. No, no submersed plants, only the branches and roots of emerged plants provide shelter for aquatic organisms. The following data were gathered by the junior author on February 24, 1994 at 11 a.m. <clears throat> Excuse me, clear with black water influence. <clears throat> Extremely acid. Current 0.5 to 1 millivolt per second. Air temperature 29 degrees centigrade. Water 24 degrees Celsius. Excuse me, 24 degrees Celsius at more than 50 centimeters depth. The fish fauna seems quite poor in species. Only six species were collected in the brook, including Tucanoichthys tucano, two cichlids, uh, Nanocara adoketa, and a crincicla species, one catfish, Adoradid ambliodorus species, and an as yet unidentified rivulus. Abundant. The only other carathoid, probably syncopic, was Posile carax whitesmani. We know about that one, the darter tetra. Yeah, it turned out to be the, I was looking at the ichthyological description of the little Tucano tetra. And it was a treasure trove of data on both the fish and its environment, which is great when you could find these original papers. I was taken by the decidedly aquarium reproducible habit characteristics of that habitat, both in terms of its physical size and its structure. It's like, boom, I was hooked. I needed to replicate this habitat. And how could I not love this little fish? I even had a little aquarium that I had been dying to work with for a while. Must have been ordained by the universe, right? Now, I admit I wasn't interested in or able to satisfy the pH down to three, you know, 4.3, which is one of the readings taken up the locale, you know, I had to hold it there. <clears throat> but I could get it into the low sixes pretty easily. Sure, one could logically call me a sort of hypocrite because I'm immediately conceding that I won't do 4.3, and I suppose that would be warranted. However, there's far cry between creating 6.2 pH for my tank, which is easy to obtain and maintain for me, and force fitting then you know force fitting fishes to adapt to our 8.4 ph los angeles tap water trust me and of course with me essentially trashing the idea of executing a hardcore 100 percent replication of such a specific locale the idea was essentially to mimic the appearance and function of an igarape habitat replete with lots of roots and leaf litter and the idea of executing it in a nano size aquarium made the entire project more immediately attainable and a little bit less daunting I wanted to see if I could pull off a compelling biotope-inspired you know, aquarium on a small scale, and that's where my real interest was. So even the create the proper conditions for the fish instead of forcing them to adapt to what's easiest for us philosophy can be nuanced. And it should. 
I don't want to mess with strong acids right now in my water. It's doable. A number of hobbyists do it successfully. However, for the purposes of my experiment, I decided to happily abstain for now. And without flogging a dead horse, as the expression goes, I think I nailed many of the physical attributes of this habitat, of, of, of this fish, by utilizing natural materials such as roots, which are representative of those found in the fish's habitat, as well as the use of ficus and other small leaves as the litter in the tank. I think we created a pretty cool biotope inspired display for these little guys. I mean, I love that tank. One of my favorite ones I ever did. Being able to pull off so many aspects of the look, feel, and function of the natural habitat of this fish was really a rewarding experience, and is a real case study for my philosophy of fish selection and stocking. Which brings us to another one of my faves, the Green Neon Tetra, Paracaridon simulans, or simulans. Everyone knows the Neon Tetra. It's a strong candidate for like the official fish of the aquarium hobby. Of course, there are other members of that genus, Paracaridon, which hobbyists have come to be enamored with, such as the diminutive yet equally alluring Paracaridon simulans, the Green Neon Tetra. <clears throat> this fish tops out at like three quarters of an inch, which is like two centimeters in length. It's certainly deserving of the hobby label of nanofish because it's really small. You can keep these little guys in nice-sized aggregations, and I wouldn't necessarily call them schools because, as our friend Ivan Mikoli beautifully observes, in an aquarium, P. simulans seems to be all over the place, each one going wherever it pleases and turning greener than when they are in the wild. This cool little fish is one of my faves of what I'd call petite tetras. Uh, you know, like the ruby tetras and those kind of guys. Uh, they hail from remote regions in the upper Rio Negro and the Orinoco regions of Brazil and Colombia, and it's a real showstopper. According to uh, ichthyologist Jacques the type locality of this fish is Rio Jufari, a small tributary of the Rio Negro in Amazonas state. One of the rather cool highlights of this fish is that it's found exclusively in blackwater habitats. Specifically, they're known to occur in habitats called palm swamps, lo locally known as campos, in the middle Rio Negro. They're pretty cool shallow water environments. Interestingly enough, P. simulans doesn't migrate out of these shallow water habitats, less romantically called woody herbaceous campinas by aquatic ecologists, like the neon tetra does. It stays close to these habitats for its entire lifespan. These compo habitats are essentially large depressions which don't drain easily because of the elevated water table and the presence of a soil structure created by our fave soil, hydromorphic podzol. Hydromorphic refers to soil having characteristics that are developed when there's an excess water present all or part of the time. So if you really want to get hardcore about recreating this habitat, you'd use immersion-tolerant terrestrial plants such as Spathanius unilateralis, Everardia montana, Scleria microcarpa, and small patches of shrubs such as Mayacara viscosa, Tococa species, and Macrosemenea symbiofolia, and grasses like Trachypogon. Now, of course, our favorite palm, Mauritia flexuosa, and its companion, Bactris camperostronis, round out this native vegetation. Now, the big question is, can you find any of these plants? Do you even care? But it's cool to know what they're there. Maybe you could. Maybe you could find substitutes. Just Google that shit. There's tons to learn about these plants. These habitats are typically choked with roots and plant parts, and the bottom covered with leaves and fallen palm fronds. This is like right up our alley, isn't it? Of course, if you really want to be full-on baller and re you know replicate the natural habitat of these fishes as accurately as possible, it helps to have some information to go on. So here's some environmental parameters from these compo habitats based on a couple of studies I found. The dissolved oxygen level is around 2.1 milligrams per liter, and the pH average is about 4.7 to 4.3. Yeah, try that one again. 
KH values are typically less than 20 milligrams per liter and the GH generally less than 10 milligrams per liter. The conductivity is pretty low. The water depth in these habitats based on one study I encountered ranged from as shallow as about six inches, which is 15 centimeters, to about 27 inches, which is about 67 centimeters on the deeper range. The average depth in the study was about 15 inches or 38 centimeters. It's pretty cool for us hobbyists, right? It's shallow. I mean, we can utilize all sorts of aquariums and still accurately recreate the depth of the habitats which this fish comes from. We often read in aquarium literature that the green neon needs fairly high water temperatures, and the field studies I found for this fish confirm it. Average daily minimum water temperature of the habitats in the middle Rio Negro is about 79.7 degrees Fahrenheit, which is about 26.5 degrees centigrade. Why do I keep saying centigrade? Sorry, American. Is it centigrade or Celsius? Celsius, filming. Anyway, showing my lack of metric uh, awareness here. Between September and February, at the end of the rainy season and part of the dry season, the average daily maximum water temperature during the same period averaged about 81 degrees Fahrenheit or 27.7 degrees Celsius. Temperatures as low as 76 degrees, 24.6 degrees Celsius, and as high as 95 degrees, 35.2 degrees Celsius were tolerated by the green neon with no mortality noted by the researchers. Interesting. Bottom line, you biotope purists, keep the temperature between 79 to 81 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 26 to 27 degrees. Now, researchers have postulated that the thermal tolerance to higher water temperature may have developed in pericaridon simulants as the shallow compost became its only real aquatic habitat. The fish preys on that beloved catch-all of microcrustaceans and insect larvae as its exclusive diet, specifically small aquatic annelids like the larvae of Chironomidae, with bloodworms to you and I, which are also found among the substratum and the leaves and the branches. Now, if you're wondering what would be good foods to represent this fish's natural diet, you can't go wrong with stuff like Daphne on copepods. Small stuff makes the most sense because of the small size of the fish and its mouth parts. This fish would be a great candidate for an urban agapo-style aquarium in which rich soil, kind of reminiscent of the podzols that are found in this habitat, is used, along with terrestrial vegetation. You could do some pretty accurate representations of this habitat, utilizing the techniques and the substrates that we talk about, and simply foregoing the wet and dry seasonal cycles in your management of the system, if you want. There's a lot of possibilities here. One of the most enjoyable and effective approaches I've taken to keeping this fish was a leaf litter-only system, which we've written about and talked about a lot here. Not only did it provide many of the characteristics of the wild habitat, leaves, warm water temperatures, minimal water movement, soft acidic water, it had the look. As you may recall, I utilized that particular setup as a test bed for my internal food production theory. Not only adding not adding any supplemental food to the tank for you know for like seven or eight months, and the little guys thrived. They were active, colorful, and fat, which is a big stretch for a little fish. In fact, there were two distinct spawning episodes in this tank. So maybe you've, again, you're noticing a pattern to my love of certain fishes. So much is based upon the habitats that they come from. My love for the fishes was amplified when I studied and learned more about these really unique habitats from which each of these fishes came. And the idea of recreating various aspects of the habitat as the basis for working with these fishes is just irresistible to me. And here's another one of my absolute favorites, the diptail or brown pencil fish. Nanostomus or nanostomus, depending on how you pronounce it, equus. Now, this one really should have been the top choice if I were just doing it in order. I love everything about this fish. Well, almost everything. Honestly, if a fish could earn the moniker of cool, this little guy would be it. 
It is absolutely not an overstatement to declare that these little pencil fishes have distinct personalities. They're not mindless drone stupid schooling fishes like some of the tetras. Sorry, my homies love you guys, but you have no individual personalities. They're proud members of the family Libiacinidae. It was first described in 1876 by the legendary ichthyologist Franz Steindachner. In fact, it was one of the first members of the genus Nanostomus or Nanostomus. Is it Nanostomus or Nanostomus? Someone will tell me. It was the first one discovered and described by science, which cool, but that's not my main reason for loving this fish. There's a bunch of unique assets, aspects to this fish and its behavior, which I find enormously compelling. Well, let's start with the name again. The Latin name of this species, Equus, means knight, horseman, or rider, in reference to the species' ob unique oblique swimming angle. Ah, that oblique swimming angle thing. Yeah, they swim at an angle of about 45 degrees facing upwards. This angle is thought to give them an advantage in feeding. <clears throat> they see insects and such that fall from overhanging vegetation better than their horizontally oriented buddies do. They get more food that way. Simple as that. What I really love about these fish is that they're incredibly curious and obviously intelligent, checking out just about anything which goes in their aquarium, or which goes on in their aquarium or, or the surrounding area, actually. They have the bearing of aristocrats and clearly consider me a bit of a fool when I look at them. It's kind of funny. They, they actually have an arrogant look, which is really cool. You get the feeling when observing them that they're acutely aware of their surroundings, and once they're acclimated, they're pretty much fearless. A fellow hobbyist once told me she thinks they're the freshwater equivalent of pipefish, and that sounds about right. I agree with that 100%. They're sociable, incredibly chill fish. Now, the only the, the thing about their ability to adeptly feed on this aliconus input into the aquatic environment makes them really easy to feed. They strike at anything you throw in there. It also gives them some clues as to the habitats that they come from, places where the food comes from the surrounding terrestrial environment. Foods from the surrounding environment, like flowers, fruits, terrestrial insects, etc. Very important stuff. We mimic this process when we feed our fishes prepared foods. This stuff literally rains from the sky, which is what happens in their environment. When a clumsy insect gets knocked off a leaf and falls into the water, the fish are right there. Now, I think what we feed to our fishes directly in this fashion is equally as important as how it's fed. So lots of food possibilities there. Now, the environments which provide this food abundance also provide lots of opportunities to replicate in our aquariums. And I love that about this fish. They come from really cool, really inspiring habitats with lots of overhanging and branches and roots going into the water. Do some research, you'll find some really cool stuff on it. They're also really adept at picking on epiphytic materials in their botanical style aquariums. It's an observation I've made many times with these fish. Yeah, they seem to spend a large amount of time picking at biofilm and other material adhering to botanicals and specifically wood. They engage in this activity almost constantly throughout the day, between feedings, of course. I'm convinced that they're likely not specifically targeting the biofilm directly. Rather, I think they're looking for the tiny crustaceans and other life forms that live in the matrix that biofilm puts down. Nonetheless, their picking disturbs the films and puts it into suspension where it can be more easily removed by filtration. So that was an unexpected plus, you know, for this beloved group of fishes. Now, I must warn you, biofilm haters, you shouldn't even consider pencil fishes as a biofilm control mechanisms, but I suppose that to you, heathens, the collateral benefit's a real nice thing. Just an interesting observation here. They're very aware, very adept feeders, always ready to pounce. What's well, the thing I don't like about these fish? Well, they can be a bit skittish. Like, chill as they are, stuff just freaks them out for like no reason. Like, they will, for seemingly no reason, just launch themselves out of your aquarium, especially if it's an open top like all of mine are with this tremendous agility. Sometimes they just land a few inches away inside the tank and that's that. Other times, completely leaving the tank and well, this usually results in a very dried out pencil fish. I must admit, I've 
found a few over the years on the floor. I guess the oblique swimming angle facilitates them reaching, you know, escape velocity rapidly. You get the feeling that they're always in this standby for launch mode, like full-on DEFCON 5 mode. Maybe because they're always looking up, the slightest disturbance from below triggers a launch. I don't know, but it's as good a theory as any. What you can't see freaks you out or whatever. And a three-inch launch gets you away from a potential predator. A six-inch launch gets you onto the floor, and damn, it's a good adaptation for protection, this launching thing, but... Like, who really wants to eat a pencil fish anyway, right? I guess the pencil fish don't know that, but they just jump. So millennia of genetic programming can't be overcome easily. It sucks, but it's the downside to keeping them in open-top tanks. Lots of twisted branches and even floating plants do help limit some of this carpet surfing behavior, but it's just not a 100% perfect solution. I admit, these guys have in the past played a central role in some of those, and then there were none disappearing you know, fish sagas that I've experienced over the years. So if you can keep them in a low-traffic area where there's not a lot of commotion, employ a lot of branches and maybe some floating plants, maybe you'll avoid this. I mean, those methods also occasionally work with hatchet fishes, another fave of mine, but almost too suicidal even for me. And that's why they're not even on my top 10 list, if you're wondering, because they are really cool fish, but whatever. Okay, I could probably do a top 10 or even a dozen fave fishes, but I'd be talking all day on this topic. Oh, let's do an honorable mention. The checkerboard cichlus, cichlid, Dicrosis filamentosus, and there's the other species, which the name escapes me right now, but that's my go-to cichlid for botanical-style tanks. I, I love them even over Epistos. As one of my friends told me, of course you do, Scott. They're fucking brown. Damn, my friends really know me well, don't they? Just try them in your next botanical-style aquarium, really. You won't regret it. Maybe we'll deep dive them, you know, on them in film and style on these guys next time. I don't know. We'll talk about them. Okay, that's a start. I think I can safely employ the great line used by one of the aquarium hobbies great saltwater fish experts, Scott Michael, who upon discussing such and such a fish in a talk would simply declare in a deadpan manner, if you don't keep these fish, you're stupid. So how can you argue with that kind of assertion? I could totally relate to that. Well, shit, you asked me what my faves are. You knew I'd have some strong feelings about them, right? Anyhow, I hope this little start gives you a look into the unorthodox way that I think about fish selection for my aquariums. So much of it is about studying a habitat I love and then researching what fishes are found in it and then why. Then recreating the habitat from them, like Habitat First. Totally works for me. I hope it works for you too. Until next time, stay thoughtful, stay curious, stay bold, stay diligent, and always stay wet. This is Scott Thelman from Tannin Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tannin.